This is a CBC Podcast. Ty, you ready to go? Hold on, Dad. Can I, can, can I just have one more game on, on a call with my friends? My parents and I get along pretty well, even though I'm a teenager. But there is one thing that we fight about. Ty, come on, man. How long have you been playing that game? It, it does, I, doesn't matter. I did all my homework. Enough. Enough. Enough with the screens. Come on, we gotta go. Ugh, they're always going on about screen time. Screen time, screen time, screen time. What our parents don't get is we have to spend time with screens. We have the homework screen, then the big screen for fun, plus the small screen to talk to our friends, which is extra important during the pandemic. Everything we do these days seems to involve screens. Heck, my piano even has a screen. So, if we need them so much, then can it be all that bad for us? It's not like my parents are limiting their screen time. They both work on the computer all day long, and I always see them on their phones texting or whatever. So, what's the problem? If we need them so much, then can screens be all that bad for us? How much screen time is too much? Ty Asks Why. I'm Ty, and this is my podcast, Ty Asks Why. There are so many good questions out there that you just want to have answered. Where is the internet? How else can we power the planet? Why are viruses so good at what they do? Why do humans dance? And what's the deal with screen time? I'm not the only one who has this conversation with their parents over and over again. Our parents were, like, very, like, cautious about that when we were little. These are my friends Caden, Finn, Piper, and Zoe. When we were younger, our parents were even stricter. Like, they were really worried that screens would do something bad to our little brains. Our dad was always like, you you can't always be on your screens, and we'd have, like, 45 minutes every other day. Thursday was my favorite day of the week because I could play Angry Words for 10 minutes. I vaguely remember when you were like 8 or 9 and we wanted to play Minecraft together, something like that, and then you were allowed like 30 minutes every other day. Yeah, it was like 20 minutes. Like It was like 10 minutes a day. But our screen time is a little more lenient now. Like We can pretty much be on a screen for two hours a day, but that's because of quarantine. It's usually 20 minutes a day, usually. Like, I don't have set time limits, but, like, my parents will kind of be like, you've been, like, on your iPad for a while if it's been a couple hours. But it's just, like, a little screen, so what is there to worry about? If you're stuck on a screen all day, I've noticed people are just in their own little bubble. There was, like, a mockingbird, and it was, like, on my street, making all these crazy noises. And everybody was just walking along like nothing was happening. And I was just like, oh my god, what? But, yeah. Yeah, Zoe makes a good point. Being on the screen does kind of pull you out of the world. Sometimes I'll be scrolling and my brother's like, Ty, 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 come here. But I won't really hear him because I'm just in that refresh zone, you know? And, yeah, it doesn't always feel super great at the end of the day. Sometimes I'll have a little bit of a headache and my eyes get all blow. But, like, is that really so bad? So, I hit up old Google just to see what the big deal is with screen time. Yes, I used a screen to see what the problem is with screens. Don't start, I know. 
And as it turns out, too much screen time can lead to problems. It can cause dry eyes and blurred vision. And the blue light from our screens can apparently disrupt our sleep and even give us insomnia. Some researchers have also linked too much screen use to depression. So, is all of this true? Are we all doomed? It can really depend on what you're doing online. Some things you should probably have zero of, and some things it's probably okay that you're using it for uh, a while. That's Madeline George. She's a public health analyst at RTI International, and she spent years studying how technology affects teens. She says it's important to step back for a minute and see this whole thing in the larger context. It turns out people have been stressing out about teens using new technology for a really long time. So if you go back in history and you look at, for example, the novel in like the 1880s, parents were like freaking out about how, oh my God, kids are spending all of their time reading books and they're getting into their own worlds and they're not paying attention to like real things. We look at that and we're like, oh my goodness, that's so funny that they used to do that. But maybe in like a hundred years, people will look at us and say, well, why were they so freaked out about, you know, phones and computers and stuff? Back in like Plato and Aristotle days, people were freaked out about you know, different types of technology. Or even, you know, in the 30s and 40s, people were really worried about comic books or TV. Like you see this throughout history that new technologies, we get afraid of them. So I think that every time we have new types of technology, we need to be wary of it, but we also need to look at it a little bit more critically and think, are we just afraid of this because it's new or are we afraid of this because of something specific? Plato's time also had tablets. Stone tablets, but I'm I'm so I'm so sorry. I can't even pretend to laugh. That pun was so bad. I love puns, so I I thought it was great. Bad puns aside, though, it is really funny to think that parents have been freaking out about their children using technology, not just for decades, but for centuries. Like I can imagine a parent just telling their kid, "All of these big books you're reading nowadays, they're gonna rot your brain," and just I can't help but laugh. But it is cool to remember that phones are just tools, like pencils or spoons, and just like any tool, it depends on how you use it. If you're eating with a knife and fork, that's great, but if you get angry and stab someone with the fork, it's not, it's not as great. Madeline thinks that it's important that parents don't just focus on the risks of screen time, but think about all of the upsides, too. Humans are a really social species. We really need to interact with other people, particularly adolescents um, and young adults. Like that is a major developmental milestone is kind of moving away a little bit from your family, gaining some independence and, you know, meeting romantic partners and friends and making different kinds of connections. And I do think that social media and digital platforms allow adolescents to do that in new and, you know, effective ways. So if you're, you know, a gay teen living in the middle of rural Idaho, you can meet other people who are like you, even if they don't live near you. That's a huge benefit. You can also talk with your friends without having to go outside. I, I think that especially right now during COVID, we don't have a lot of opportunities to really engage socially with other people and digital platforms really allow us to 
talk to other people and keep those social connections. You hear that, parents? We need our screens to maintain our humanity by staying social. Madeline is really helping me build a case to bring back to my mom and dad, so I had to make sure to ask her the big question. In your opinion, how much screen time is too much? Well, that's a tricky question because I really don't think that a time limit is is really the best measure of technology usage. But in general, if you're not taking away from everything else in your life, then you're probably doing okay in the amount of technology usage that you're doing. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. You can't really give it time because it can be so broad and you're giving like a blanket term for a certain number just doesn't really make sense. Exactly. So, you know, if you're using it 12 hours a day and you're not eating or sleeping or doing anything else, well, that's obviously too much time. But if you're using it a few hours a day, I can't really tell you if, you know, three or five hours is too much or too little. It really depends. It's super interesting that even though I've been hearing the phrase screen time, screen time for years, an expert like Madeline doesn't think there's a magic number. In fact, time is not the best measure for this sort of thing because we do so many different things in our devices. You can't say more than three hours of screen time is bad for you because what if you're talking about three hours of school? So not all screen time is created equal. Yeah, so this is where kind of one of the distinctions comes in is that active use, so like creating content, talking with friends, that's associated with more positive outcomes, whereas passive use, just browsing through and looking at content can sometimes be related to, you know, declines in well-being. It makes sense that passive scrolling is the thing that can harm us because you're taking in a ton of information and Maybe if you're like me, you can get caught in a spiral where you're just comparing yourself to other people and your eyes get all blurry and you kind of forget where you are and sometimes who you are. But we don't have to use our technology like that. You know, I could just be passively scrolling through Instagram for two hours or I could be creating posts on something I'm passionate about like Doritos and talking to my friends. It's also a place where you can build your own little universe or learn new skills like how to whistle. <sighs> okay, I still need some practice. Everything Madeline is saying sounds super reasonable though. Screens aren't all good or all bad, they're just tools and it all depends on how we use them. So it seems like our parents just don't understand. Do you think that this fear is rationalized or do you think that they're kind of just overreacting? Um. I'm not going to say that everything about technology is fine or good. There are some things that we do need to be worried about. So if you're using it at times when you should be doing other things, like if you're using devices when you should be paying attention to your, you know, your coursework when you're in school or when you should be sleeping or really engaging with other people face to face, it can be a problem. Okay, okay. Just so you know, I'm a goody two-shoes and... I am on top of my schoolwork, but I do know how hard it can be to stay off screens when I'm supposed to be doing something else. And I'm not the only one. My friend Zoe has trouble too. Before quarantine, I rarely use screens ever, like mainly for like schoolwork or something. But now I'm on it like all day. I don't know why. I just have nothing to do. I think they're addictive, probably. Uh, 
Ugh, you're in withdrawal, Zoe. You have a really bad addiction. <laughs> I joke, but really, can people get addicted to screens the way they get addicted to drugs? I think that's another one of those big fears that our parents have. But they're totally different things, right? Since almost everyone has to use it, can it really be called an addiction? So it can be. I think the word addictive can be stigmatizing. But if we break down sort of the definition of addiction, then perhaps it can be. That's Cara Baggett. She's a child and adolescent psychiatrist at the Icon School of Medicine. She works with teens who have substance use disorders, and she also does research into how teens use technology in addictive ways. Kara says that, though screen addiction isn't exactly like a regular substance abuse disorder, it does check some of the boxes. The big one being that it gets in the way of you just living your life. So using even though you may know that you shouldn't be, so like texting, you know, when you shouldn't be texting when you should be doing homework or doing something else, um, like if you're texting and driving, but you just can't help yourself, then then those sort of behaviors can indicate that it may be addicting. And apparently there's evidence for this in the brain. The science around screen media addiction is suggesting that there is a link, that the brain may in some way be changed by our use or overuse of things like our smartphones. And then once we have the sort of brain changes, those lead to those behavioral changes where you just feel like you have to use it. Maybe you feel like depressed or sad or anxious if you actually can't use it. Whoa. So repeating the behavior actually kind of reprograms our brain? Exactly. It's a huge feedback cycle, right? You start using it occasionally, but it makes you feel good. So you use it more and then the brain gets used to you using it more. So you feel good every time you use it. So you use it more and just keeps on escalating. Similar to other types of addictions to substances like drugs. Exactly. So a lot of the sort of brain research in this field has looked at it in the same way as we look at the way um, people use drugs. Some of those same brain areas are activated when using things like our smartphones to text or social media or video gaming. So what we call an addiction isn't really about not having self-control. It's that when we do something like watching YouTube videos, it's very stimulating and it feels so good that our brain notices it and actually rewires itself to want it even more, to do that thing over and over again. And when we stop, our brain literally becomes hyper-stressed because we don't have the thing that we want the most. When you're getting addicted to something, the prefrontal cortex, which makes rational big boy decisions, can get thrown off. Kara called that part of the brain the brakes on our behavior. So essentially, if your brakes aren't working, you get very impulsive and you can't stop yourself from checking your phone every minute or playing that game secretly when you're supposed to be sleeping. So all of this is a little worrying, knowing that using screens a ton is actually rewiring my brain, especially because I'm a teen and my little brain is still busy growing. Does getting addicted to something when I'm a teen put me at more risk? It does. And the reason why that is, is 
the brain is still developing. So our brains continue to develop until we're in our like early to mid 20s. Any exposures we have during childhood and particularly during adolescence, including sort of screen time or drug exposures or exposure to violence, anything fundamentally sort of changes the brain in the way it functions and responds to the world. Kara says we still don't know what kinds of long-term impacts those changes could have. So she's doing this cool research where she's looking at the same kids for 10 years to try to figure that out. But for now, all of this has got me wondering, like, why do screens make us feel so good to begin with? What makes it so stimulating and irresistible that day after day we just want to go back and stare at them for hours? Maybe you're familiar with this feeling. I certainly am with going on to something like Twitter and just kind of going into this wormhole. And when you leave, like, you don't feel good, <laughs> right? Like, I don't feel good at the end of that. And yet, like, it, I still do it. That's Jenny O'Dell. She's a writer and artist who teaches digital art at Stanford University. And she wrote a book called How to Do Nothing, Resisting the Attention Economy. Yeah, so the attention economy is a system where attention is the currency. So an example would be advertising, where what they're trying to do with ads is get as much attention on something um, as possible for as long as possible, you know, ultimately so that you will buy it. Another example would be the way that some social media apps are designed with, you know, notifications, you know, all manner of visual design decisions that are made to keep you looking at something. Auto-playing videos would be another example. So if you think about all of the design decisions that are made to kind of keep you on an app and keep you scrolling, keep you engaged. But why would these companies want to keep me scrolling? Yeah, I mean, that's their business model. They are collecting data on their users. They're also serving ads to their users. You know, not to say that, you know, these platforms aren't used in meaningful ways, but uh, from a business standpoint, that's kind of what they are trying to do. So there's a very real reason for these designs. And, and it's kind of, you know, something it's, it's fascinating. Like once you kind of start paying attention to it, you start looking for all of these little design things, you will start seeing them everywhere. It's very pervasive. And you also notice, you know, the effects that they have on you as a user. I have Snapchat, and I noticed that on there you can have a streak with someone. Like, if you snap someone and they snap you back every day, it keeps a little fire emoji next to their name. So, every day at some point you remember, oh, can't break my snap streak. I personally hate streaks. So annoying. And I don't use Twitter, but I've been on it, and I noticed that when you scroll down, it's just this infinite feed. There's no point to stop. So, yeah. These tech companies are playing mind games with us, and that just makes it harder and harder to get off the screens. Especially in a space like social media that moves so quickly, it can kind of start to feel like everything is always happening right now. Like you're refreshing the feed and something's happening now, something's happening now, like over and over again, right? You, you're seeing all of these different things. Oh my God! I am the one! No, God, please, no! Some of them are funny. Wait a minute! Some of them are sad. The world is now in the midst of a global health emergency. Some of them are you know, horrifying. <coughs> and they're all just kind of thrown together in this big jumble. Get some help. Another one. Who are you? Two hours later. Do it! 
right? Like you just kind of get stuck in this sea of, of stimulus. Yes, I know that feeling so well. I don't even remember most of the stuff I'm looking at. Then suddenly, bam, five hours have gone by. And it's a really upsetting feeling. Like, I don't have a lot of free will in this. I want to make sure that my attention is my own, and I get to use the internet in the way that I want and I control. But how do I do that if these things are designed to suck me in? Jenny says the key is to take back our attention, and instead of staring at our screens, we need to just do nothing. I thought this meant like, you know, sitting on the couch and pretending you're dead for an hour or two, which I'm very, very good at. But that's not quite what she's getting at. Um, no, although that could be very interesting. Um, so when I say do nothing, I mean nothing from the point of view of, you know, we have these expectations around what's a worthwhile way to spend your time. And oftentimes that has to do with doing work and being productive. So doing anything that doesn't feel productive can often feel like doing nothing. So just going for a walk versus walking somewhere on, you know, on purpose. Um, things that are kind of not goal-directed maybe involve some wandering or just kind of an open state of mind. So it's it's not something that literally looks like doing nothing, but it can feel like nothing compared to how we normally view our time. But why is it not good to focus on being productive all the time? I mean, I thought that being productive is productive. <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple of reasons. The most important one is just the possibility of burnout. So if you're constantly um, wanting to be productive, pretty quickly you run up against just, you know, exhaustion. Um, I think also you can lose perspective on what it is that you're actually trying to do. So, you know, breaks are really important for restoring yourself and also kind of like reorienting yourself. Like, you know, am I working on the right thing or, you know, what is the overall reason that I'm doing this? And then I also think it's just important to leave space for surprise. Yeah, the world needs recess again. I mean, recess was great because, you know, you do some learning, you do some learning, then when, whenever all the kids are just kind of like, oh, you know, they've had enough info crammed into their faces, they get recess. They get to just chill and unwind and do whatever they want. You know, most people just run around, burn off some energy. The world needs that time to just, you know, have recess. Yeah, that's a really great example, and it's making me realize that adults don't have recess. <laughs> we don't have anything like that. <laughs> yeah. I miss recess. Whenever there was snow, we'd always make these snowballs, but since we couldn't throw them at each other, we'd, like, throw them up, like, at the school wall, and the game was to try to see how high you could get it to stick, because, like, you know, little bits of snow would stay. And... That's just doing nothing, but we'd always come back feeling better, so I think that's what she's trying to get at. Jenny apparently has her own little version of recess. Watching birds. I am very fortunate to live in a place that has lots of birds, so I live in Oakland, I'm in California, and you know, it's not that it's not goal-oriented, right, like the goal is to see birds. But you can't sort of go out and, and find a specific bird most of the time. Like, you can't make a specific bird sort of show up. It requires this state of patience and openness and kind of, you know, just wandering around and, like, seeing what happens. 
because of that, I'm always surprised. When I go bird watching, I have no idea what's gonna happen. I'm just excited to see, you know, whatever birds happen to be there that day. Jenny made it sound so nice. I thought I'd just go out and try it for myself. I wasn't super convinced that I would see any birds because I live in a loud neighborhood in a busy city, but as soon as I got to the park, pretty much right away, I saw a bird. It was this little tiny bebe sparrow on the ground, and it was so cute. Then I observed some pigeons. Did you guys hear that? Oh, that is wonderful. That is absolutely wonderful. Being out there with the pigeons reminded me of that story Zoe told me about how she saw that mockingbird on her street, but no one noticed because everyone was on their phones. She kind of made the same point as Jenny, that sometimes we need to put our phones down, remember where we are, and just listen to this beautiful, wacky world around us. I think I'm going to listen to Jenny and Zoe and take my own personal recess more often. Maybe that'll make my mom and dad happy. Ty asks why. Thank you guys so much for listening. I'm Ty Pool. This show is produced by Amanda Buckowitz and Judy D. Goo. Judy's also our digital producer. This podcast was created by Veronica Simmons, and she is also our editor and sound designer. The theme music is by Johnny Spence. Sound engineer is my papa, Min Nguyen, and our location manager is my mama, Nikki Poole. Thanks for helping me make the podcast. I'll try to lay off the screens. Today, my guests were Cara Baggett, Madeline George, and Jenny O'Dell. Jenny recommended an app to me. It's called iNaturalist, and you can use it to identify plants when you're out in the world doing nothing. It's really cool. Special thanks to Austin Pomeroy for his assistance. Thanks also to my friends Caden, Finn, Zoe, and Piper for talking to me about how they use technology. Our senior producer is Tina Verma, and executive producer of CBC Podcasts is Arif Norani. Till next time, I'm Ty. Keep asking why. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.